Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine podcast. With you is Dr. Danya Koja. I'm an emergency physician who is based all over the world, I think, at this point. That's right. And I am Wendy Chang, an emergency physician and neurointensivist in Baltimore, Maryland. And today we're going to discuss the Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine publication, the October 2021 issue. And if you don't know what Critical Decisions is, what are you waiting for? It is ASAP's official CME publication. It is great because every month we have two lessons that cover bread and butter emergency medicine or things that are cutting edge, but they always focus on only the critical decisions that you need to think of in the ED. There are also a lot of other features, such as the critical EKG, critical image, and as our listeners know, my favorite, the LLSA review. So let's start with our first lesson for this month, thrown for a loop into succession. Thank you to doctors Emily Ayub and Hannah Smith for writing this article. You know, Wendy, kids and belly pain are difficult. Sometimes they don't tell you when they're having pain, and sometimes they tell you they're having pain when all they're trying to tell you is that they're hungry or they're too full or please feel bad for me so you can give me ice cream. So <laughs> how can we figure out? <laughs> I mean, I, at least I try that sometimes. So how can we figure out when abdominal pain is actually a serious emergency in kids? Maybe the way to test it is to give them ice cream. Then we would know. If they don't want to eat it, then they must be sick. But okay. <laughs> All joking aside, I am not advocating for that. <laughs> I think you should, though. I think belly pain in kids are quite scary, especially as our topic this month, intussusception. It's the most common abdominal emergency in early childhood. The trouble is, like you mentioned, these affect young kids aged 6 to 36 months, with 60% occurring in those who are less than one year old. So these are kids that who can't tell you the details about their symptoms. Obviously, we learn about these being colicky abdominal pain, vomiting associated with bloody stools and a sausage-shaped mass. I don't think I've ever palpated a sausage-shaped mass in a kid who has intussusception before. And the article also tells us that less than half of these patients will have three out of four of these symptoms. So as we have often mentioned in our podcast, patients don't read textbooks. The current jelly stools that we also learn about is a late finding or not present at all. So I think we have to have a high index of suspicion and consider it, especially in young infants who are not acting right or lethargic, et cetera. That's a great pearl, Wendy. We cannot wait for these classic features to be present in order for us to think of intussusception. So how are we supposed to diagnose it? Well, if you obtain an abdominal x-ray, it could show signs of obstruction, but more frequently, you may find that there's lack of air in the ascending colon. The trouble, of course, is that abdominal x-rays have poor sensitivity and specificity, but you should still get it if you're worried about a kid having a perforated viscous. Ultrasound in kids are often utilized because, of course, no radiation, and they have better sensitivity and specificity. The article quotes these as to be greater than 95%, which is quite good. And articles to share some data that there's no difference between clinician-performed bedside ultrasounds versus radiology-performed ultrasounds, so another plus for our focus. The classic finding you're looking for is a target sign or bullseye on the short axis and a hay fork or a pseudo kidney sign on the long axis. And there's some great images in the article that shows what these mean. There's also different ways you can do the ultrasound and the article also goes through that. 
Well, that's a great review and definitely we will not attempt to talk about ultrasound techniques on an audio podcast. So how are we supposed to treat it? I know air contrast enema is a thing. So does that work? Is that what we're really supposed to do? Yeah. 90% of intussusception are ileocolic and they do require reduction. And this is done under fluoroscopy. And the kids will need rectal insufflation of air or administration of contrast to essentially kind of, you know, distend and untelescope the bowel. It's not 100%. And so those who are at higher risk for the reduction not working are those who've had symptoms that are greater than 24 hours, if they're presenting with diarrhea, lethargy, or a more distal location of this intussusception. This can be repeated if the child appears well and is otherwise low risk overall but it should be done at a center that can actually perform needle decompression or have surgical backup in case of complications. And so you may have to transfer your child with intussusception to a center that does this better. And I'm assuming the reason we're transferring them is because they may need surgery. So specifically, who are these kids? Right. So you can imagine the kids who need surgery are those who are unstable, those who have peritonitis, who have a perforation, or an unsuccessful reduction. Prophylactic antibiotics are not required for reduction, but you should give them for surgical patients. Got it. So let's say you have a kid who comes in, you do the air insufflation, they are successfully reduced, you do not give them antibiotics because I was listening to you and you said we shouldn't do that. Can you just send them home? You can. Now, there is, of course, a risk of recurrence. So this is the education you should provide to the family. And the risk of recurrence is up to 15%. But if their symptoms resolve, they're able to tolerate PO, this was successfully reduced, you can discharge them after observing them for about four hours. Got it. So thank you, Wendy, for this fantastic, succinct review of intussusception. I think that if I try to spell succinct and intussusception in one sentence, I'll totally fail that test, but I can say it. So this is a great reminder that it's usually with kiddos who can't talk. So that's just, you know, really young. And although we think of abdominal pain and vomiting and bloody stool and sausage-shaped mass and current jelly stools, that's not really a thing. So we have to have a very high index of suspicion, especially in young kiddos who don't act right. And the big thing that we need to do is we can ultrasound them because that's very sensitive. If we find it, air contrast enema will probably work in a lot of kids that are low risk. However, if it doesn't work, then these kiddos need surgery and antibiotics at that point. That's right. So keeping up with a pediatric theme, this month's clinical pediatrics section, which is our newest feature, talks about the supracondylar humerus fractures. And it talks about a case of a three-year-old kid who fooshed and now has decreased range of movement of his left elbow. And his x-rays show a supracondylar humerus fracture with super obvious x-rays because it's a displaced type three. However, the article reminds us that there are a couple other types that are not three. So one that is absolutely not displaced and that's really subtle or two, which is displaced with one intact cortex. So it's not always this obvious. Okay. So any imaging tips for some of these less obvious fractures? One, it's very important to have a true lateral view so that you're not missing those fat pad situations that I'm going to talk about. And the way you know that it's a true lateral view is that you would be able to see this hourglass appearance. And you need to take a look at the figure in the article to figure out what that means. The second thing is that you would look for the fat pads. So the anterior fat pad can be elevated. So that's a sales sign. 
or a person would have a posterior fat pad, which should not exist. And then you should look for alignment using the anterior humeral line and radiocapitular line to make sure that there's nothing malaligned, which would be a subtle sign of a fracture. And then finally, remember that in kids, normal ossification centers exist, and those can be mistaken for a fracture. Oh, yes. Other tips? So we all know that neurovascular injury is important to look for because that's going to change our management. And one way to look for vascular injury is to check the pulse ox on the fingers. Remember? that your patient can have an absent pulse, but a warm hand because you have good collateral circulation. It's still a problem, but don't just assume that because the hand is warm, then the pulses are intact. For nerve damage from the supraconal humerus fracture, the most common nerve injured is the intraosseous branch of the median nerve. And the way to test that is to ask your patient to make the okay sign. So they flex the IP joint of the thumb and the distal IP joint of the index finger and make that okay sign. Finally, Beware of skin tenting because that can cause skin necrosis and think of compartment syndrome in these fractures. So how do we treat these then? So all of these kiddos must be followed up by ortho. The question is when? So if it is complicated by neurovascular injury or compartment syndrome, those need to have an emergent assessment and reduction by ortho. If it is absolutely not complicated, their neurovascular exam is completely intact, their compartments are soft, type one, just splint them at 80 to 90 degrees of flexion and send them home. Type two or three, split them at around 30 to 40 degree flexion at the elbow. The ones that we're gonna reduce in the emergency department and not even wait for ortho to come and show up are those who have neurovascular injury with poor perfusion. So those where the collateral circulation is not helpful enough to get them through until they see ortho. You would perform gentle traction to reduce it as much as possible to regain flow splint them, and have ortho see them emergently. Got it. Okay. So keeping up with our trauma theme is our critical case in orthopedics and trauma, and this is a case of knee dislocation. We've talked about this before, and it's worth talking about again since it is a high-risk injury. And one pearl for reduction of knee dislocation is to not press on the popliteal fossa to avoid damage to the neurovascular bundle. And we've said this before, but we can't say this enough. Even if the patient has a palpable distal pulse, they can still have a vascular injury. So you have to do ABIs with and without a duplex to really evaluate for vascular injuries thoroughly. If there is an absent pulse or an abnormal ABI, then you would want to follow that up with a CT angiogram to know more definitively where the injury is. There is a great flow chart in the article about how to make some of these decisions following your reduction of the knee dislocation. And finally, have a high index of suspicion that the injury even occurred. We definitely think about it in high energy mechanisms such as an MVC, but it can also happen with low energy mechanisms such as obese patients with a fall. And 50% of these can actually spontaneously reduce. And so by the time you see them, they may not be very obvious. Those are such great pearls about a very high risk injury. So moving on away from trauma, but still something that really hurts is our critical image of this month. And it's a very interesting case of recurrent pharyngitis in a 59-year-old male who was eventually diagnosed with a laryngeal mass. And it's an important reminder that in patients with quote-unquote pharyngitis that has been going on for longer than two weeks with no infectious signs or symptoms, we should think of malignancy. And in fact, clinical practice guidelines from the American Academy of Otolaryngology notes that there are some high-risk findings for malignant neck mass in adults, including an age more than 40, tobacco and alcohol use, 
presenting with pharyngitis or dysphagia, voice change, unexplained weight loss. And there is another risk factor as well that is not explicitly mentioned in those guidelines, which is HPV. One of the reasons in our younger patients that they would have laryngeal masses that are malignant. Interestingly, the guidelines recommend against using antibiotics in this high-risk population unless there's clear evidence that there's a bacterial infection. Because giving antibiotics in patients who don't need them is associated with a delay in the diagnosis of this malignancy in up to 70% of cases. Because patients are just thinking, oh, I'm getting my throat infection treated, and that follow-up never happens, that CT gets delayed, and bad things happen. So depending on the patient's ability to follow up on your clinical assessment, it actually may be appropriate to get that CT with IV contrast in the emergency department. Wow, that's very good to know. I think next time I prescribe antibiotics for quote-unquote pharyngitis, I should stop and think, could it be something else? Absolutely. So now on to our critical procedure this month, controlling a bleeding insertion site. And this is referring to when you're placing a central line, dialysis line, etc. What can we do besides direct compression if that site continues to bleed? I have one word for you, Wendy. Per stitch. Well, it's just like two words, but it's the one thing. And the article explains it really well of how to do it, kind of how to do the stitch around the catheter itself. But it's definitely worth knowing how to do this, especially in your bleeding dialysis catheters. And a great pearl that the article also has is that once you're done, put on a transparent dressing so that you can tell if there's re-bleeding pretty early on before, you know, you see blood under the stretcher. That's right. And don't tie it too tight and kink off your catheter. Then you're messed up. Then, then you're <laughs> starting from step. From step before getting the catheter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, not very helpful. Well, speaking of risk of doing things that are bad, our LSA review this month is malpractice risk and mitigation. And we will be discussing Ferguson et al.'s article that was published in GEM in 2018 called Malpractice in Emergency Medicine, a review of risk and mitigation practices for the emergency medicine provider. Well, we all know as emergency medicine practitioners that the specialty is associated with a moderate malpractice risk. And this article definitely sheds light on some trends that have been associated with malpractice and ways to mitigate that risk. We all know also that there are high-risk diagnoses such as acute MIs that are missed, fractures, foreign bodies, abdominal pain, appendicitis, etc. But I think the things that we should try and focus on are documentation, especially relating to our decision-making and reassessments, and that errors are more likely to occur with crowding nursing shortages, which we are all experiencing right now, increased handoffs and reliance on residents, Interestingly, night shifts and the second half of any shift are associated with increased errors. So being cognizant of that, or maybe even have staffing models that considers how to balance patient loads, et cetera, would potentially help with these. That is pretty eye-opening. So now that we know what are the things that can increase the risks, how can we mitigate those risks? I think it comes down to three things, communication, documentation, and discharge follow-up. You know, we talk about communication a lot in the ED, especially because we have limited time to really build a rapport with our patients and our families. And when you analyze a lot of these cases, it all comes down to some breakdown in communication. And it's actually more predictive of potential litigation than the actual injury experience. So spend time discussing the treatment and educate the patient and their families. 
as well as recognizing feelings of disappointment in the event of a negative outcome. As for documentation, you know, speech to text tools can improve charting and decrease the risk, but of course it comes with its own risks. And then as for discharge, it's very important to clearly discuss and document the plan that you laid out with the patient, especially if there are any pending tests. Think of it as similar to the education and discussion you have even for your AMA patients, right, which is a high-risk cohort. You should probably approach all of your patients with that sort of explicit discharge plan. And finally, if you are dealing with patients who are intoxicated, you want to make sure you're documenting clinical sobriety when it's appropriate to hopefully decrease some of your risks. Those are such great pearls to remember during every shift that we work so that we can decrease this risk of litigation and malpractice. For our critical EKG this month, it's a great reminder that hyperkalemia truly is the syphilis of EKG as it can present as anything. We already know it's classic presentations, but don't forget it can cause fascicular blocks, AV blocks, bundle branch blocks, anything. It definitely is scary and is very syphilisy or syphilitic in nature. (laughs) So for our second lesson of the day, beneath the surface, transgender health. Thank you to Dr. Teresa Allen for writing this article about something incredibly important. Yes, this is her first time discussing this topic on critical decisions and it's long overdue. We know that many transgender patients experience discrimination and discomfort within the healthcare system, and we need to be better at addressing their needs, understanding the health conditions that are unique to this population, and how to approach them. So what are we going to talk about? So first things first, let's get the terminology and concepts clear. Gender identity is an individual sense of being a man, woman, both, or neither. Sex, which is assigned at birth usually, refers to the biological attributes that society characterizes as male or female, like gonads, internal external genitalia, secondary sex characteristics. And assigned birth sex and gender identity may not match. And if these don't match and they cause the individual distress and suffering, that is what is called gender dysphoria. It's incredibly important to remember that gender identity and sexual orientation are not the same concept. Being transgender does not imply anything about a person's sexual orientation. So we should not make any assumptions whatsoever. It's also important to remember that some transgender individuals choose to retain their natal genitalia, which they may or may not use in a sexual manner. And some seek genital surgery as part of the gender affirmation or not. That's super helpful. Those are very important clarifications. There's a great table in the article listing common transgender terminology that we should be familiar with. So what are some health disparities that affect the transgender community? Well, transgender individuals are more likely to suffer from poverty, be refused a home, be homeless, and be discriminated against in hiring, firing, and promotions. This is associated with an increase in mental health issues and substance use disorders. In one survey of transgender individuals, 82% of respondents contemplated suicide, and half of those have actually attempted it in the past. Transgender individuals have a high prevalence of psychological and physical abuse, and they have three times as much the rates of drug use as the general population. HIV rates in transgender individuals is four times the national average, especially in male to female transgender individuals and people of color. Either coming from unprotected sex, including a high prevalence of sex work for income within this population, and sharing needles that are used for hormone injections. The risk of death from AIDS is also much higher than the general population. Wow, those are definitely sobering stats. 
We know that many transgender patients experience discrimination and discomfort within the healthcare system. So what can we do to improve that in the ED? So from an individual standpoint, we are doing it right now. We are familiarizing ourselves with the terminology and health conditions. We are understanding more about the needs of this population. These things that we're talking about are not physician-specific or health practitioner-specific. Simple things like adding a transgender option to our intake forms can be a very powerful sign that shows individuals that we are welcoming of them in our emergency departments and our healthcare facilities. Asking individuals what name and pronouns they prefer goes a long way. Referring to body parts with gender-neutral language, such as chest and genitals, whenever possible, is also very helpful. As we said before, we should avoid any assumptions about gender identity or sexual orientation. Now, from a systematic standpoint, when our EMRs can have an item about gender identity and sex assigned at birth and a place where we can put in the preferred name, this makes things a lot easier for practitioners to know these things and be welcoming of the patient. Finally, and this is not mentioned in the article, I think it's incredibly important, just like in any other situation, to have humility, apologize if we make a mistake, and ask questions that come from a place of wanting to understand and wanting to connect with your patient. Great points. So let's talk a little bit about hormonal therapies. So in male to female individuals, hormone therapy might include an antiandrogen, such as spironolactone or finasteride, an estrogen, and in some cases, a progesterone component. Spironolactone, which we're usually familiar with in the antihypertensive liver disease world, has drug interactions with things like digoxin and ACE inhibitors and can cause hyperkalemia. Estrogen, as we know, increases the risk of venous thromboembolic disease. In female-to-male individuals, hormone therapy primarily uses testosterone, whether it's injected or transdermal. It can actually cause polycythemia and drug interactions with things like warfarin, propranolol, sulfonyl, ureas by increasing hypoglycemia. Some patients also use gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists, and that is for both male-to-female and female-to-male individuals to reduce innate hormone secretion. However, those are expensive and they're given subcutaneously every few weeks. I see. Anything else to note about hormonal treatment? It's important to remember that not all hormones are prescribed, as they may be obtained from street vendors, the internet, friends, which can lead to dosage errors and other issues, like we talked about with sharing needles. We need to remember that testosterone in female-to-male individuals does not completely prevent ovulation, and therefore patients may become pregnant. Missing a dose of testosterone or a thyroid disorder in patients taking testosterone can cause vaginal spotting, And the atrophic vaginitis that results as well from using testosterone can lead to increased bacterial vaginitis and candidiasis. Another fascinating trivia that I learned about is that injectable testosterone can cause hypersensitivity to sesame oil or cottonseed oil. So patients can present with this new allergy that they didn't know they had. Oh, very interesting. What about surgical interventions for transgender individuals? What do we need to know about those? The article is chock full of pearls and things that we can learn about, but I'll focus on a couple of things that are more relevant to us in the emergency department. It's important to remember that surgical interventions include genital and non-genital surgeries. And not all transgender individuals seek any sort of surgery whatsoever to achieve the comfort in their gender identity. The details of these surgeries, as I mentioned, are discussed in the article. As for the male to female genital surgeries, vaginoplasty is one of them, and it is commonly done using rectosigmoid colon segments. And it can be complicated by a rectovaginal fistula in one out of 400 cases. So patients can present with things like abdominal pain and leaking of intestinal contents into the neovagina. However, that can be really subtle and present with only a brown discharge. 
One way to figure this out is to insert a tampon into the vagina and use an enema with food coloring and see if it stains the vagina. And if that happens, you know that there is a fistula. Now, not all of these fistulas will need surgical repair, but they definitely need follow-up. And patients may be started on like a liquid or low residue diet, discontinuing their regular vaginal dilation and have close follow-up. Another complication that usually occurs in the immediate postoperative time, but can be a little delayed, is flap necrosis which can present as non-blanching erythema or modeling of the skin that becomes progressively darker. If you suspect flap necrosis, get an immediate surgical consultation. Got it. What about female to male surgeries? Well, bilateral mastectomy is the most common surgical procedure in female to male individuals. As for the genital procedures, individuals may choose to undergo a phalloplasty, so using graft tissue from the radial forearm, or a metoidioplasty, which uses the existing genital tissue, or neither. And depending on the type of the procedure, the patient may end up with a suprapubic catheter for two to four weeks until healing is completed. Phalloplasty, which is a more extensive surgery, can be complicated by flap necrosis or urethral fistula or eventually urethral stenosis. And another general surgery to be aware of is scrotoplasty as well. Okay. Any other pearls relating to these surgical procedures? Keep in mind that the prostate is not removed during genital surgery in male to female individuals. And although it happens less in individuals taking feminizing hormones, the risk of cancer is still present. These patients still have a prostate. They can still get prostate cancer. Same thing for the presence of a cervix and a uterus. Don't assume that these organs have been taken out when they haven't. In fact, testosterone may actually increase the risk of endometrial cancer. Wow, such great info. Anything else? It's important to remember that this is not an all-encompassing review. And that the article that we are discussing, which is in this month's Critical Decisions, and a ton of the other referenced resources are available for us to continue learning about this and caring better for our patients. Well, thank you, Daniel, for taking us through this very important topic and article on this underserved population. It's, in fact, really hard to summarize it because there is so much information. I think my main takeaways are that we shouldn't make assumptions about our patients that we all have a lot more to learn about this topic, this population, and the health disparities, conditions, et cetera, that they experience. But even when we talk about just the medical emergencies that we may deal with in the ED, I also learned things like transgender males can still get pregnant and the risk of prostate, cervical, uterine, endometrial cancers, et cetera, are still, in fact, there, if not more in this population. So definitely check out this article for more information. And moving on to the drug box this month, we are talking about carisivimab and imdevimab. Well, these are used for post-exposure prophylaxis for COVID-19 in adults and pediatric patients, those who are 12 years and older, weighing at least 40 kilos, And this is specifically for patients who are at high risk for severe disease, such as those who are not completely vaccinated or are immunocompromised. There's, of course, limited data, as with a lot of things in this disease, but the data thus far shows that there is about a 2% absolute reduction and a 70% relative risk reduction in COVID-19-related hospitalizations or mortality. It's important to know that there is a risk of hypersensitivity reactions, though, in about 1% of these patients. Definitely a medicine to keep an eye out for, for our high-risk patients. 
And then last but not least, our tox box this month is chlorfinapir, which is a pearl insecticide that can be absorbed transdermally and causes uncoupling oxidative phosphorylation. And the big thing to remember about this is that initial symptoms can be minimal, but it can be metabolized to an active toxin in the body that then results in latent death, like seven to 20 days later. And that is the scary thing about this, is that your patients are quote unquote fine, but then they're dead. So hyperthermia, which is not good in case there was any question there. Um, and hyperthermia is an important sign that something bad is happening. And I, I mean, I don't know, you know, like the little person's like the sign that's on the bathroom. Yeah. I just imagine them getting like more and more orange with time and then red and then they turn into flame. Like, I think that's what happens with uncoupling oxidative phosphorylation. Probably not what actually happens when it comes to like, you know, like science, but it just helps me remember that that's how these patients present. Management is supportive until they kind of get through this episode. And again, the big thing here is delayed presentation. Yikes. So I guess if you have a known exposure to this, you can watch out for the sequelae. (laughs) Yep. And that's actually what you're supposed to do is that if they're asymptomatic, they monitor their temperature for as outpatient for a while. And then once that starts to go up, then that's a sign that they're having that uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation and they need to they may come back to the hospital. Some point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they explode per se, but somewhere true. along those lines. <laughs> well, technically that is correct. So coming to a hospital near you, hopefully never. Well, thank you, Wendy, for taking the time to go through this issue with me. I learned a lot and I had a lot of fun, as always. Our dear listeners, we hope you enjoyed listening to us as much as we've enjoyed recording this. And I hope that you find the Critical Decisions publication in our podcast always informative, often enlightening, and never boring. We would love to hear from you on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Danya Koja. Mine is at EM underscore NCC. And until next month. Bye-bye.